Welcome back to Paranormal Stories and Spooky Shiz. I'm your host, Chappie, and in today's episode, we will be discovering the life and times of Ed and Lorraine Warren. Are they real in all their spookiest cases, or are they frauds? All right, buckle up for a spooky episode. Here we go. Synonymously tied with the world of the paranormal, Connecticut's Ed and Lorraine Warren are often regarded as some of the prolific paranormal investigators of the 20th century. For the better part of 50 years, the Warrens have investigated supposed haunted or paranormal activity across the globe, including the famous Amityville Horror and the Enfield Poltergeist. The duo's investigations have spawned a frenzy across pop culture, leading to numerous books and movies solely dedicated to the Warrens' experiences. The Conjuring movie series, which chronicles some of the most publicized investigations by the Warrens, is currently the second highest grossing horror series of all time at the box office. So who exactly were the Warrens? According to the New England Society for Psychic Research, Ed Warren Miney was born in Bridgeport in 1926. Less than a year later, Lorraine Rita Moran was born in the same city. The couple married in 1945, and in 1951, they gave birth to their only child, Judy Warren. Ed served time in the Navy during World War II, and upon returning home, studied at art at Yale's subsidiary art school, Perry Art School. Ed and Lorraine traveled New England, attempting to make a profit on Ed's paintings, but along the way, it was said that the two would often make stops at haunted locations, which were often the inspiration of Ed's artwork. This was said to be the catalyst for their exploration into the paranormal. Lorraine was said to have been clairvoyant, meaning that she was reported as having been able to gain insight on cases through supernatural abilities. She was also considered a medium, which means having the ability to communicate with paranormal entities. According to her biography on the New England Society for Psychic Research website, Ed was a self-taught demonologist and devout Catholic. In 1952, the Warrens established the New England Society for Psychic Research, which is credited as the oldest paranormal research organization in the country. According to that organization, the Warrens conducted over 100 individual paranormal investigations during their time. The case of supposedly possessed Raggedy Ann doll, named Annabelle, was the duo's first major case that propelled them to paranormal superstardom. The doll was given as a gift to a Hartford, a Hartford nurse in 1970, and once she brought it home, she and her roommates reported unexplained behavior coming from the toy. It was said to have moved on its own, in one instance reportedly attacked one of the owner's friends. The Warrens were called in to investigate, and they claimed that the doll was being manipulated by the spirit of an outside entity. After an exorcism at the apartment, the couple agreed to take the doll. It currently resides in the Warren Occult Museum in Monroe, the Conjuring House. Folklore claims that this 18th century home in Harrisville, Rhode Island is haunted by a woman who killed herself and her child, according to the New England Society for Psychic Research. In 1974, the Warrens made multiple trips to the home to investigate claims of levitating beds and smells of rotting flesh. Their trips to the house could be chronicled in the first Conjuring movie. 
Forty-five years after the Warrens' investigation of the premises, the house was purchased by a new family who has opened the home to paranormal investigations, according to USA Today. Perhaps the most famous case investigated by the Warrens is the case known as the Amityville Horror, which launched a multi-million dollar franchise and appeared in the second Conjuring movie. The Amityville Horror story is that of George and Kathy Lutz claimed that they were driven out of their Long Island home in 1975 by a violent paranormal entity. A year before the Lutz family moved into the house, it was reported by the New York Times that Ronald Defoe Jr. shot and killed six family members in the house. The Warrens investigated the home and claimed that it was haunted. However, according to an article by the Washington Post, further investigations have revealed that the reported happenings in the home were mostly a hoax. James Brolin and Margaret Kidder posing in front of the house is a scene from the film 1979 film, The Amityville Horror. In 1978, the Warrens investigated one of the most notable paranormal cases in London. Residents of a home in Enfield claimed to have seen furniture move on its own and to have heard disembodied voices call out to the homeowners. According to The Telegraph, UK, the owner's two teenage daughters were said to have been the focal point of the paranormal activity. Upon investigating, the Warrens claimed that there was some form of demonic possessions occurring with the children in the home. Their investigation into the case became the central plot to The Conjuring 2, The Smurl Haunting. The War Warrens investigated a small home in West Pittston, Pennsylvania that was supposedly experiencing paranormal activity. The family claimed that a demonic entity threw the family dog and pushed their daughter down the stairs. According to a 2016 article from the Pittston Progress, a town's local paper, the Haunting was turned into a 1991 made-for-TV movie, The Haunting in Connecticut. A home in Southington, Connecticut would go on to be the inspiration for the modern horror classic, A Haunting in Connecticut. According to an article from NBC News, the Warrens went to investigate when the owners of the house claimed that their son was experiencing personality changes that were violent in nature. The homeowners also stated that apparitions would appear throughout the home. Reports remain conflicted regarding these occurrences, and it was reported that the son suffered from schizophrenia, according to the 2009 article from the New Haven Register. The Devil Made Me Do It This Brookfield paranormal trial is the basis behind the latest Conjuring movie, The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It. In 1981, Arne Cheyenne Johnson stabbed and killed Alan Bono, claiming that he was possessed by a demon when he committed the murder. This was the first time in American court system where a defendant claimed demonic possession. According to an article from the New York Times, or the News Times, the Warrens spent time with Johnson and his family and claimed rationale in the demonic possession theory. However, a judge ultimately disregarded this theory and sentenced Johnson to prison, where he served five years before being released. After the hauntings. Toward the end of their investigative period, the Warrens focused heavily on passing on their knowledge of the occult by hosting various lectures across the country. In 2006, Ed passed away at the age of 79. Lorraine continued to do the lectures on her own and served as the consultant on the first two Conjuring movies before her death in 2019. The Warrens New England Society for Psychic Research is currently run by their son-in-law, Tony Spera, 
co-director of the organization and curator of the Warren Occult Museum in Monroe, as well as Warren's daughter, Judy Sparrow, who also co-directs the organization. The duo have continued the Warren's tradition of lectures on the paranormal and have preserved the Warren's case files archive. All right, that was from the CT Post. Let's read their Wikipedia page. They call their organization Nesper for short. Skeptics Perry DeAngelis and Stephen Novella investigated the Warren's evidence and described it as blarney. Skeptical investigators Joe Nickel and Benjamin Radford concluded that the better-known hauntings, Amityville and the Snedecker family haunting, did not happen and had been invented. Notable investigations. Annabelle, that we've already mentioned. The Parent family, that we'll get to. Amityville. The Enville Poltergeist, Arne Johnson, the Snedecker House, the Smurl Family, Union Cemetery. According to a 1997 interview with the Connecticut Post, Steve Novella and Perry DeAngelis investigated the Warrens for the New England Skeptical Society. They found the couple to be pleasant people, but their claims of demons and ghosts to be, at best, as tellers of meaningless ghost stories, or at worst, dangerous frauds. They took the $13 tour and looked at all the evidence the Warrens had for spirits and ghosts. They watched the videos and looked at the best evidence the Warrens had. Their conclusion was that it's all blarney. They found common errors with flash photography and nothing evil in the artifacts the Warrens had collected. They had a ton of fish stories about evidence that got away. They're not doing good scientific investigation. They have a predetermined conclusion which they adhere to, literally and religiously, according to Novella. Lorraine Warren said that the problem with Perry and Steve is that they don't base anything on God. Novella responded, it takes work to do solid critical thinking, to actually employ your intellectual facilities or faculties, and come to a conclusion that actually reflects reality. That's what scientists do every day, and that's what skeptics advocate. In an article for the Sydney Morning Herald, that examined whether supernatural films are really based on true events. That investigation was used as evidence to the contrary. As Novella is quoted, The Warrens claim to have scientific evidence, which does not indeed prove the existence of ghosts, which sounds like a testable claim in which we can sink our investigative teeth. We have found... What we found was a very nice couple, some genuinely sincere people, but absolutely no compelling evidence. While it was made clear that neither DeAngelis nor Novella thought the Warrens would intentionally cause harm to anyone, they did caution that the claims like the Warrens served to reinforce delusions and confuse the public about legitimate scientific methodology. The Occult Museum? In addition to investigations, Lorraine ran the Warren's Occult Museum, which is now closed, in the back of her house in Monroe, Connecticut, with the help of her son-in-law, Tony Sparrow. The museum displayed many claimed haunted objects and artifacts from around the world. Many of the artifacts from their most famous investigations were featured. The museum is currently owned by Judy Warren and Tony Sparrow. All right, let's go over to Travel Channel where they have 11 things you need to know about legendary paranormal investigators Ed and Lorraine Warren. Legendary paranormal investigators Ed and Lorraine Warren's work inspired Hollywood's blockbusters, but how much do you really know about the couple? 
and the infamous hauntings they investigated. Read on to find out about how they rose to fame, Ed's near-death experience, and the time they received reinforcements from a future pope. Yeah, you read that right. Ed and Lorraine Warren's paranormal investigations served as the inspiration behind one of the most iconic horror movie franchises, The Conjuring. The series began in 2013 with the release of The Conjuring, which earned more than $300 million at the box office. Since then, the series has expanded to include the films The Conjuring 2, Annabelle, Annabelle Creation, Annabelle Comes Home, The Nun, The Curse of Lorena, and more films in production. Number two, both Ed and Lorraine's interest in the paranormal started early. As a boy, Ed grew up in a house he believed was haunted. Lorraine began to notice her clairvoyant abilities at a young age as well. As a child, Ed recalled doors opening on their own and strange lights starting to form in his house. Lorraine recalled her first experience around nine. She remembered seeing auras around people, but assumed this was normal. Number three. Ed Warren had a near-death experience while serving in the Navy during World War II. Ed entered the Navy on his 17th birthday. A few months later, the ship Ed was on collided with an oil tanker in the North Atlantic. A fire erupted and all the men on the ship had to jump overboard. As Ed was in the icy water, he prayed for help and was soon rescued. After that, he returned home and asked Lorraine to marry him. Number four. Ed Warren was a fine arts painter. The couple used his painting skills as a way to gain entry into houses they wanted to investigate. They would research houses they believed to be haunted, then drive to the house. After Ed painted the house, he would hand the painting to Lorraine. She would knock on the door and offer the homeowners the painting as their ticket into the house. Once she struck up a conversation with the homeowner, they would learn more about the property and the hauntings. This, this process was how the, their investigative career began. The Warrens tried to rule out all logical or physical explanations before agreeing to take a case. They did not just take anyone's word when they said they were experiencing paranormal activity. Ed would go to the scene and use every avenue available to him to rule out all logical explanations before moving forward with the case. The first case that garnered media attention occurred in their hometown of Bridgeport, Connecticut in 1974, more than 20 years after Ed and Lorraine began their work. The Warren's family, friend, and psychic, Mary Piscarella, contacted them and informed the Warrens of the paranormal activity. Local Bridgeport residents Jerry and Laura Gooden were experiencing. Once news got out about the poltergeist affecting the house on Lindley Street, crowds began to form outside the house. This was the first case where the Warrens experienced such large media presence as they tried to conduct their work. Number seven, Ed and Lorraine were both devout Roman Catholics, and Ed was eventually recognized as the only Catholic lay expert on demonology. Their devout faith included an inherent belief in the supernatural and the world beyond. The Warrens worked closely with the Catholic Church during multiple exorcisms, and their faith played an important part in their investigations. Number eight, Ed and Lorraine gained popularity in the mainstream media and have even appeared on popular television shows, in, including The Merv Griffin Show, The Tom Snyder Show, A Haunting, and Scariest Places on Earth. As their notoriety grew, the Warrens expanded their audiences 
through media appearances, speaking engagements, and college lecture tours in an attempt to prove that the devil was real. The Warrens continued to make television appearances throughout their career, and Lorraine even had a cameo in The Conjuring, number nine. While the Warrens gained popularity, they also gained critics. In an effort to prove her abilities were not faked, Lorraine underwent scientific testing by the parapsychologists at UCLA. The team of scientists that examined Lorraine was led by Dr. Thelma Moss. After extensive studies, they determined Lorraine was a light trance medium. Number 10. The Warrens encountered a succubus during the paranormal investigation of Jack and Janet Smurl. While investigating the Smurl family, Ed determined that the entity that was haunting them was a succubus, a specific name given to a demon that primarily attacks males. Number 11. When the Warrens' efforts to remove the succubus from the Smurls' house failed, they received reinforcements from a future pope, Pope Benedict the 16th. Yeah. At the time of the Smurl haunting, Pope Benedict the 16th was known as Cardinal Ratzinger. The Warrens contacted the Catholic Church and described the haunting happening at the Smurl household. Cardinal Ratzinger assigned as an exorcist from the Catholic Church who went to the house and performed a ritual of exorcism. The Ritual Romano. And let's take a little break. All right. <clears throat> so we go over to journalnews.com where they have an article about the strangest cases Ed and Lorraine Warren ever worked, according to the Warrens themselves, by Patrick Thornton. If you look into the most notorious cases of hauntings, possessions, and paranormal phenomena of the last 50 years, you'll probably find out that they were investigated by Ed and Lorraine Warren. A World War II Navy veteran and police officer, Ed Warren believed in the supernatural from an early age, having grown up in a reportedly haunted house. Lorraine, who grew up just a few blocks from Ed, demonstrated psychic abilities in early childhood, being able to see auras around the nuns at her Catholic school. Ed and Lorraine began dating when they were both 16, and they were married two years later. Ed eventually began studying demonology and founded the New England Society for Psychic Research in 1952. The Warrens could go on to... A would go on to investigate hundreds of cases related to hauntings and demonic possession. After Ed passed in 2006, Lorraine served as a consultant for the Conjuring Movies franchise, which is based on the cases she and Ed investigated together. With Lorraine's passing in April of 2019, many are looking back at the legacy left by the couple and their contributions to ghost hunting and demonology. Below are some of the most famous and terrifying cases the Warrens investigated. And who better to comment on the details than the Warrens themselves? Number 1. Annabelle the Haunted Doll Despite what Hollywood interpretations would have you believe, the real Annabelle was an antique rag doll that any child might own. Perhaps the innocent nature of the doll makes the case surrounding it more unsettling. The doll had been given to a young woman named Donna, who began to notice the doll moving throughout her apartment. Donna's roommate, Angie, also noticed Annabelle moving, and the two called in a medium, who said the spirit of a young girl was attached to the doll. Lou, a friend of Donna and Angie, thought there was something evil about the doll, 
but the medium insisted the girls, the young girl's spirit felt safe with Donna and Angie. Lou awakened from a deep sleep one night to find Annabelle crawling onto it, this bed and attempting to strangle him. As Annabelle became increasingly aggressive, Donna and Angie called in the Warrens to investigate the case. The Warrens confirmed a demon was manipulating Annabelle, and that the demon would have taken a human as its host within two or three weeks based on the stages of demonic possession. An exorcism was performed on the doll, and the Warrens proceeded to take it back to their home in Connecticut. Once in the Warren's care, Annabelle began moving around their house, even after being put in a locked room. The Warrens eventually had a special case made for Annabelle that featured three crosses and had holy water in the wood stain. Annabelle became part of the Warrens' occult museum. During a tour of the museum, Lorraine pointed to Annabelle and said, This is the worst thing in here, and refused to look directly at the doll. Annabelle is sometimes said to move in her case. One man reportedly perished in a motorcycle accident shortly after visiting the Warrens Museum and mocking Annabelle. Annabelle's a really creepy one. Alright, number two, the Perrin family haunting. Before the Warrens investigated the Smurl family or the Amityville case, they made series of trips to Harrisville, Rhode Island, where the Perrin family was being terrorized by increasingly powerful evil spirits. Carolyn and Roger Perrin purchased the 14-room 18th century farmhouse in 1971 to raise their five daughters, and they wrote off initial paranormal activity as the quirks of an old home. However, as activity escalated, Carolyn researched the home and discovered it had been the same family for generations and was the site of a possible slaying as well as multiple hangings in the attic. It had also been reportedly been a home to a woman named Bathsheba Sherman, who is said to have been a practicing Satanist and child slayer. As the haunting grew stronger, the parents would smell rotting flesh and levitate in their beds. Lorraine and Ed conducted a seance that quickly turned dangerous when Caroline became possessed by an evil spirit. One of Caroline's daughters remembered her mother speaking in tongues, levitating from her chair and being thrown across the room. Roger asked the Warrens to leave and never come back. Reflecting on the case years later, Lorraine recalled, I knew the house was haunted. All I had to do was walk in it. We just had to find the source. The case would later be combined with the haunting of the Annabelle doll as the plot of the 2013 film The Conjuring, on which Lorraine was a consultant. Number three, the haunting in Connecticut. The case of the Snedecker family haunting began in 1986 when Carmen and Al Snedecker rented a home in Southington, Connecticut. They moved in order to be close to a hospital at which the family's oldest son was undergoing treatment for Hodgkin's lymphoma. The house seemed perfect for the family until move-in day, when they discovered it had been a funeral home, and the basement bedroom reserved for their two sons had been part of the mortuary. The family began hearing voices, and the children saw apparitions throughout the house. The family even reported being physically attacked by demonic forces. Without the option to move due to financial constraints, the family contacted Ed and Lorraine Warren for support. The Warrens spent many nights at the Snedecker home and confirmed the hauntings. Ed even watched as the lift mechanism that brought caskets from the basement to the main floor moved on its own. 
Lorraine vividly remembered the first time she entered the house, stating, As soon as I walked into the first room, it was just overwhelming, bad feeling. I had a feeling of fear. The Catholic Church performed an exorcism on the house at the Warrens' request, and no other families have reported paranormal activity. Lorraine also noted the 2009 film, The Haunting in Connecticut, exaggerated some aspects of the case. Lorraine added two scientists stayed with her and Ed during a nighttime investigation because they were skeptical, only to flee the home in the middle of the night. Number five, the Smurl family haunting. Jack and Janet Smurl spent years dealing with an increasingly powerful supernatural force before the Warrens came to investigate in 1985. The Smurl case is unique because it spanned over a decade and the hauntings affected the entire family though Jack seemed to be the primary target. The hauntings in that family's Pennsylvania duplex began with disembodied voices and rapping on the wall, but soon turned into full-fledged attacks on the family. Jack and Janet both said they levitated off their beds one night, and Jack reported he was assaulted multiple times by an evil spirit known as a succubus. The family dog was also attacked, and a chandelier fell and nearly took the life of one of the Smurl children, despite the fixture being bolted in to a support beam. As the warrants made their way through the home, Lorraine came to the conclusion there were four evil spirits, including a powerful demon. There was no doubt whatever in my mind that what this family was experiencing was sheer terror being brought about through ghost syndrome, Lorraine said after her first visit to the Smurl home. It took four exorcisms to fully weaken and vanquish the evil spirits, and the Smurls reported no paranormal activity after the fourth exorcism. Again, we've mentioned a lot of these before, but these go into more detail, so I will read them. Number six, the devil made me do it. Sometimes known as the devil or the demon murder case, the devil made me do it case involved the demonic possession of a young boy. The Warrens were initially called to investigate when 11-year-old David Glitzel began showing signs of demonic possession. As Lorraine described in an interview, one minute David would be intently drawing at the kitchen table, and the next moment he was no longer an 11-year-old boy. Lorraine saw a black mist form next to David, indicating the presence of a demon. Ed and Lorraine called in the Catholic Church. A team of six priests, including three from the Vatican, performed an exorcism on David. Although the de demon did leave David's body, something is said to have gone terribly wrong. Arne Cheyenne Johnson was the boyfriend of David's older sister, Debbie and considered by those around him to be an all-American boy. He was present for David's exorcism, and he challenged the demon to leave David's body and come into his own. According to Johnson and the Warrens, the demon did just that. When you challenge the demonic, it doesn't act at the particular given time. It waits until you are most vulnerable, and then it strikes, Lorraine said of the incident. It was shortly after the exorcism that Johnson fatally stabbed Alan Bono, Debbie's boss and landlord, during a heated argument. Johnson said the demon forced him to commit the crime. Johnson was eventually convicted of manslaughter and served time in prison. Lorraine Warren later consulted on a book adaptation on the case, The Devil in Connecticut. Number 7. The Enfield Poltergeist From 1977 to 1979, the Enfield Poltergeist was an active case in England and was captured massive media attention. The Hogston family who rented their home in Enfield reported large pieces of furniture moving on their own, 
The mother, Peggy, even called the police, and one officer reported seeing a small table slide across the floor. In fact, more than 30 visitors to the home reported poltergeist activity, which included moving furniture, wrappings, and voices. Peggy's adolescent daughters, Margaret and Janet, seemed to be the target, often going into trances and speaking in guttural voices. The Enfield poltergeist case is unique because the extensive video footage taken in the home during the prolonged investigation. This case holds the distinction of being Warren's first major investigative case after Amityville. However, they were not as involved in the case as the film adaptation, The Conjuring 2 suggests. Ed did save the case. Those who deal with the supernatural day in and day out know the phenomena are there. There is no doubt about it. In reference to the video footage taken inside the Hogson's home, Ed noted, Now you couldn't record the dangerous, threatening atmosphere inside that little house, but you could film the levitations, teleportations, and dematerializations of people and objects that were happening there. Not to mention, there were many hundreds of hours of tape recording made of these spirit voices speaking out loud in the rooms. Although skeptics say the case was a hoax, the Warrens stood by their findings of actual paranormal activity. Number 8. The Borley Rectory Haunting Although the infamous Borley Rectory burned down decades before the Warrens came to investigate, the neighboring Borley Church still stands, and the church is said to be a site of paranormal activity. The original Borley Rectory was reportedly built on the site of an old monastery where a nun was buried alive in the walls of the building after attempting to run off with a monk. The subsequent hauntings were made famous by Harry Price, one of the first paranormal investigators, who documented a long series of phenomena that remains a matter of debate. Ed had been interested in the case since reading Harry Price's famous book, The Most Haunted House in England, while serving in the Navy during World War II. Beginning in 1976, the Warrens made over two dozen trips to the site of the Borley Rectory and Church. Lorraine described her first visit to Borley as a phenomenal experience. She explained that during the visit, a skeptical reporter began feeling ill and couldn't breathe. Later that night, Lorraine and the reporter listened to a tape recording of the event where a disembodied female voice could be heard saying, hit him, hit him, repeatedly. Lorraine theorized it could have been the spirit of the nun who had been buried alive. The Warrens also reported that they captured a ghost photo of a monk inside the church during one of their many investigations. Number 9. The White Lady of Union Cemetery The White Lady of Union Cemetery is probably one of the most famous hauntings in Connecticut lore. With multiple reports of drivers seeing a woman in white wandering through the cemetery and walking along the highway, One man even claimed he saw the white lady standing in the road while a male apparition appeared next to him inside his car. The man, Rod Vexy, even appeared on television with the Warrens to discuss his encounter. Ed himself became so obsessed with the haunting, he went on stakeouts in the cemetery for seven nights straight in order to see the white lady with his own eyes. I could hear what sounded like a woman weeping, Ed said in an interview. I could see all these ghost light forms into a figure. He said that figure became the white lady, but other shadow ghosts appeared around her as he got closer, and that whole ordeal was caught on camera. The video was never released to the public, 
but Ed noted it was a moment he'd waited for his entire life to witness. Number 10, the South End Werewolf. Bill Ramsey knew he was different at age 9, when after a cold chill came over him, he became so filled with rage he ripped a fence post out of the ground and began to chew it. All he could think about in that moment were wolves. Ramsey's childhood outbursts seemed like an isolated incident until the mid-1980s, when he began growling, baring his teeth, and biting people, including cops. Medical tests showed nothing wrong with Ramsey, either physically or mentally. It seemed like there was no way to help him. Enter Ed and Lorraine Warren. The Warrens were visiting London when Lorraine saw Ramsey's case discussed on a television program. She remembered thinking at the time, Something inside of me told me I could help him. Lorraine confessed that she took solving the case to an extreme, buying expensive film footage of Ramsey, while Ed thought the case was outlandish. A werewolf in London? Who would believe it? He stated in a later interview. Lorraine believed Ramsey was possessed by a demon, which caused him to behave like a werewolf. The Warrens were able to convince Ramsey Ramsey to undergo an exorcism, which was filmed, showing Ramsey exhibiting wolf-like behavior. Both the Warrens and Ramsey believed the 1989 exorcism to be successful, as Ramsey never exhibited the aberrant behavior ever again. Alright, let's go over to Atlas Obscura, where they have an article on the Warrens Occult Museum in Monroe, Connecticut. A collection of haunted artifacts chronicles the career of the most famous paranormal investigators. Open since 1952 when the Warrens founded the New England Society of Psychic Research, the ever-expanding collection of knickknacks and artifacts that have been touched by evil is kept in the basement of their home. When they weren't delving into high-profile cases of demonic mischief such as the Amityville Horror or Haunting and the Exorcism of the witch Pasheba, uh, the Warrens were popular lecturers in their day. Throughout their cases, the Warrens collected trinkets and totems they claimed were defiled by evil, locking them in their museum to keep them safe from the public. The eccentric collection contains everything from an alleged vampire's coffin to a child's tombstone used as a satanic altar. Death curses, demon masks, and psychic photographs line the museum's walls, accented by a Halloween store's bounty of plastic props, assumedly for mood. However, the most prevalent items seem to be the cursed Raggedy Ann doll by the name of Annabelle, which is said to have killed a man. Annabelle sits in her glass case, backlit by a haunting red light. Looking at the Warren's collection, one might think that hell had things had a thing for dolls. Whether or not one believes in the paranormal, the Warrens Occult Museum may be one of the permanent chronicles of modern culture's obsession with the supernatural. Of course, it could just be a spooky collection of stuff in an older woman's basement. Alright, let's take a little break. Alright, so now we're going to go over to TikTok where there is a couple of videos by creator DrunkBetch.on um, and they kind of talk about Lorraine and Ed Warren and their museum with all of their artifacts in it. So let's give it a listen. 
Ghost hunters, paranormal researchers. But we prefer to be known simply as Ed and Lorraine Warren. Of course, those are the actors playing them in the Conjuring movies. I'm Lorraine Warren. This is and, the real one. Uh, this is my home. We've lived here, oh, I guess about 40 years now. This is where everything started. Everything started about our work. Something awful happened here, Ed. What is it? Whatever Lorraine sees, feels, touches, it takes a toll on her little piece each time it's been quite a career and i'm still involved i'm still involved with hauntings you know and helping people get through it's a very delicate thing with certain people because they're very terrified and very frightened but there's a lot of people that don't believe you have a lot of spirits in here but there's one that i'm most worried about because it is so hateful Okay, so let's go in. I'll show you the house. There's a lot of pictures of us in the house. Here's here's one of the pictures of Ed and I. You guys were inseparable. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we were. We didn't do anything without one another. You're in probably one of the most haunted places in the world because of the things that are in here. Everything in here has been taken from some place where people were either killed or maimed or so, so many ways. So it's it's tragic for me, you know, to even go in. People are very, very interested in the museum. And there's some people that are afraid to even go in. All right, so that was part one. Right here is a conjuring mirror. Everything and anything in here we have investigated. Don't ever touch anything. And if you do, let me know. This is the worst thing in here. It's that doll. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna stare at it though. So you, you can take the picture, but I'm not gonna stare at it because that is that has done badly bad harm on a lot of people. You have to conjure the spirits in order to get them. You know, you're not going to get them by just walking around here. And that's the one that's sort of depicted a little bit in this movie, correct? Yes, it is. That, that's the Annabelle doll. Yes. The priest has just in. been done is circular embolism, which is prayers, are said all the time. You know, to pray. You're a priest to bless. Yes, yes, definitely. Definitely. Yes. Oh my God, yes. I can't do that. It's November 1st, 1971. I'm sitting here with Carolyn Perrin, who, with her family, has been experiencing supernatural occurrences. These are clips from the movies. Badly affected. Really badly affected. That was a terrible place, honey. That was a very, very, very bad place. It's not easy. It's not easy, you know. You, you know, you see things and experience things. It's more comfortable now. It's a lot more comfortable for me. 
especially not Annabelle. Yet tonight, Annabelle will be set free from her protective enclosure, if only for a moment, as she is transferred from her current case that is in need of repairs into the original case made by Ed Warren. This process is not to be taken lightly, with extreme measures and preparations in place. A balance must be held while moving Annabelle quickly to ensure she cannot wreak any more havoc upon this earth or those within the room, yet still handling her relocation with ease and respect to not infuriate the evil within it and strengthen its ability to break free. This relocation will be the sixth time to ever happen across the last 50 years. This room is just full of so much history. Necronomicon, do not touch anything. These are all items that have energy of some nature, and I wonder if all the blessings that happen just completely suppress it. It's like a, a boxer with his hand tied behind his back. What can you? So it makes me wonder that if anything can push through, you know, how like, the strength it has to do that. Oh, look at that. Whoa, it doesn't even sound like anything. You don't even hear it. It's so odd to think about like what this room is used for. That he would actually sit in here and review all the tapes. And let alone to think what's in all those boxes. Right, all the records. Oh yeah, look, it even says in a dark place, the Dublin, Connecticut. This is a long story, but I'm going to tell it to you because if you want the real story on what happened here. That's a handwritten sign by Ed. Positively, do not open. He wrote that years and years ago. I think he wrote it probably in 77, 78. People ask me why the devil tarot card is here. Ed put it there, so we leave it there. It's a different case, but we put it there. This item here is probably the most dangerous item. That's why it's in a case. And I'm not going to touch it. I never touch it. Not with bare hands. People say, well, you know, didn't you bring it to Las Vegas? I did bring it to Las Vegas. But I know how to protect myself. And I'll tell you how I know. Ed showed me. He said, if you ever have to move the doll, the way to do it is this. But when you handle the doll, you don't handle it with your bare hands. Ed told me, wear a pair of like heavy welding gloves. Make sure your hands were drenched in holy water first before you even put the gloves on. And envision yourself in a white light and ask God for protection from anything evil that might be attached to Annabelle. But it's rare that we move it. We try not to move it very often. There are times though when we have to move it, like when we have to repair the case, which we're gonna have to, we're gonna have to do. We'd have to repair this case and move the doll. What he does, Dan Rivera, my lead investigator, he made this case. What he does is he gets stain, he gets water, he brings it to the priest, and he has the priest bless it. Wow. Then when he built this case, he stained it with the holy water and oil in combination with the stain, infused in it. Behind the doll, behind the felt, he has a prayer written in there, the Our Father. Mm. On the sides, if you want to catch that with the camera, he cut out crosses on both sides and across here. And he has two plaques, the St. Michael the Archangel prayer. We consider that a protection. Not total protection, because you never know. Yeah. That's why we don't touch it with our very hands. That's why it's glass. So the story of Annabelle. So the story of Annabelle. You ready for this? Oh, absolutely. Lorraine and Ed got a call from two nurses. They said, we have this item and we think it's causing a lot of problems with us. Can you come over? So they went over to the house and Lorraine and visited these two girls. One of her names was Donna. She's the one who received the doll from her mother. 
as a birthday gift. Now, Donna was about 28 years old at the time, but she liked dolls. A lot of girls like dolls. I don't blame them. You know, it's nice. It's like, we like model cars. Nothing's wrong with the doll that they can see. Everything's fine. They even put a little gold bracelet on the doll's wrist there. You can see later. She would carry the doll all over the house. One day, while they're in the breakfast nook, I know it's going to sound illogical and crazy, they're sitting at the breakfast nook, and the doll is next to them, her and her, her roommate, who's a nurse also. All of a sudden, those two flimsy rag hands levitated onto the table like this, together, like this, and landed there. Now, the girls look at each other. How about you? I'd be a little panicky, right? Mm -hmm. They didn't. They're more intrigued, like the, the other nurse says to Donna. She's, hey, the doll must be trying to tell us something. And Donna says, yeah, look, look, maybe, I mean... And the other one goes back and says, well, I know a psychic. Why don't we call her in? We'll have a, we'll have like a, a seance or something and see if she, we can find out what she wants. That's what they did. That was their first mistake was giving that recognition like that. Yeah. So they did. They had a friend come in that night around the table and do a seance. Here's what the psychic says. I'm picking up the spirit of a young girl who was killed in a car accident outside your apartment complex. She's about seven years old, and her name is Annabelle. She's in your doll. That's what she says to the girls. The girls bought it, hook, line, and sinker. Yeah. Now, the psychic didn't know what the hell she was talking about because God does not allow a human spirit to enter inanimate objects. Like, in other words, when you go home tonight, your grandmother's not in your living room chair. A demonic entity could be attached. Now they're intrigued, and they're saying, wow, there's a human spirit in our doll and they said they really treat it with more reverence you know more like like it's human donna had the doll on the edge of a couch in the open and lou who's donna's fiance was sitting on laying on the other end of the couch sleeping he wakes up with a start he's sweaty he's like heart pumping he's holding his chest he's like man i just had the worst nightmare and Donna's like what happened what happened lou and he points at the doll he says I just had a dream that that doll there was crawling up my leg and it got to my neck and started to strangle me. That was his dream, nightmare. What's he do? He grabs the doll off the couch because he's, he's angry and he's nervous. Grabs the doll, he picks it up, he throws it all across the room on the carpet. He says, that's just a raggedy hand doll, can't hurt anybody. That's just a raggedy hand doll, can't hurt anybody. When he said that, seven psychic wounds appeared on his chest and on his stomach. Four this way and three this way, and came through his t-shirt. Like somebody took a scalpel, and they could see the blood coming through the t-shirt. Now they're freaked out. Now Donna and their girlfriend and Lou are like, wait a minute, that can't be a seven-year-old girl inside that doll. Something's wrong here. They called a high Episcopal candidate in Hartford. He didn't know what to do. He says, you know, I'm not versed in this kind of stuff. He says, why don't you call the Warrens? They know all about this stuff. And Lorraine get there, they had a priest come with him and did an exorcism of the house. And the girl said, well, what are you gonna do with the doll? And we don't want that doll. Can you take it? I said, I'll bring it back to my museum. So I took it back to the museum in his car, he had like an old Chevy. As on the way home, the car's jerking, stopping, stalling. Never did that before. He had trouble controlling it, bouncing off the curbs. Finally, he stops the car. He had holy water. He always kept it in his pocket in a little plastic bottle. He sprinkled holy water on her. He said, the sign of the cross and said, they are father. And he said they were able to make it home. When he did, he put it in a chair like this chair right here. Put it in the corner over here. You could just reach over and grab it. But he put a little yellow tape. It's a danger, do not touch. So that was fine for a while, right? A priest, Father Bill, 
He comes over in the daytime, has lunch with Ed and Lorraine upstairs. After they're eating lunch and having tea, he says to Ed, Hey, Ed, can I see that doll that I heard so much about to put slashes on people? That's how he said it. Yeah, it's just kind of doll, father. I'll show it to you. He gets to the doll, starts to talk about the doll that's in the corner, and he starts to talk, he gets to the part with the slash marks with Lou, and the priest, like, doesn't want to know. The priest goes, what? He reaches over the tape, grabs the doll. That's the guy. He grabs the doll. You know what he does? He grabs it, almost like Lou. Throws it across the museum and says, God is more powerful than any devil or demon. Ed says, Father, why did you do that? I told you not to touch anything. The priest says, I don't care. God is more powerful. Ed says, you know what, Father, you're right. God is more powerful than any devil or demon. But no human being is. No priest. You shouldn't have touched it. The priest didn't want to hear it. They go back upstairs. Dad's not too happy with the priest, by the way. They say their goodbyes. The priest gets in his brand new car and leaves. The priest never made it to his diocese that night because the car went out of control, almost head on into a tractor trailer. Destroyed the car and injured the priest. It didn't kill him. It injured him. Two days later, the priest calls up, crying, to, crying on the phone to Ed. He tells him about the accident. He says, you know what, Ed? He says, the last thing I can recall was looking in the rearview mirror, and I saw an image of that doll, and I, and I lost control of the car. It's like, father, I mean, I don't have to tell you, but you know, I told you not to touch the doll. Ed used to give these little tours of the museum. He used to charge like five or $10 or $12. He'd have a group of college kids would call up. He'd say, oh, if you get 10 kids, I'll, I'll give you an hour and a half tour. And one of the kids came on a motorcycle with his girlfriend, gets to the doll. Now, at this time, the doll's in the case. Because after all these incidents, as Ed said, I'm going to have that case built, which was that case there. That is really? the original case. No way. That's, where, that's the original case right there. And that's where we're going to put it when we transfer the doll for repairs. Wow. Temporarily, we're going to put her back right there. That was the case that the young man ran up to. Ed's talking about the doll. He gets, again, to the, sla I guess the slash marks like a trigger. Mm -hmm. He talks about the slash marks appearing psychic wounds. The young man... Breaks the crowd, breaks in the crowd, runs up to the glass, starts banging on the glass with his fingers, says, this is a bunch of bull. If that doc could put slashes on somebody, do it to me. What'd he do? He challenged. He challenged the doll. And it's like, hey, you, you and your girlfriend, you got to get out of here. I can't have that. I just got you telling you people, don't disrespect the doll. Don't challenge. Get out. Kids mocking it on the way out, laughing with his girlfriend. He never made it home. Yeah. Three hours later, he found out. That he was killed on that motorcycle Jesus. when he went head on to a tree. Now, how do we know what happened? The girl didn't die. She was in a hospital for many months, though. And she said, when interviewed, the last thing she recalled was laughing and joking about the doll with him before he lost control of the bike. Now, I've looked at that doll many times. I've never challenged it. I've never said, I want to see something happen. I never said, I want to see the doll move. I never said, if you can do something to me, do it. No, that's ridiculous. That's stupid. It's like going to Mike Tyson. Go ahead, hit me. Okay, you think you can hit me? You think you're tough? Why would you challenge? So over here is the movie doll. Is the movie at all? Oh, wow. I did this not is even one see of that. the movie dolls. That's one of the dolls right there. Warner Brothers was super nice and allowed us to have one. And do you believe this is just a normal doll? Or do you believe because of the intention they put into this for the movie that it also has? Well, that, you never know. That's why she's in a case. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's why I was asking. That's why I was You never know. Look. You never the satanic idol of Newtown. This is a mind blower, and I'll tell you why. Something terrible happened to this, this idol, and it happened to Lorraine. 1991, it gets a phone call from a young man, about 22 years old, who's a bow and arrow hunter. 
hunting deer in the woods in Sandy Hook. If you know Sandy Hook, you know what happened there, the tragedies. Because this was way before that happened. He gets lost looking for deer. All of a sudden, he stumbles on a grotto of rocks. On top of it is the idol. Never saw anything like this before. Matter of fact, I didn't either. He starts to walk away down this pathway, scared. Says heart's pounding. Because he feels funny looking at that thing. As he's walking away, this is the crazy part right here. Out of nowhere, in the summertime, in the middle of the woods somewhere, a guy appears right next to me, all dressed in black, head to toe, about 70, 72 years old. Snow white hair combed back, short cropped snow white beard, walking step for step with this young man. As the kid's walking, this guy's walking with him without looking at him. I got so scared, I, I wanted to just take an arrow out of my quiver and go like this and stab the guy. I was so frightened of the guy. I said, well, you didn't do that, right? He goes, of course not. He goes, but I did muster up enough energy to say, how do I get out of this place? Mm -hmm. The man never looked over at him, stared straight ahead, never spoke, pointed off to the right like this, and then walked away. He gets to the road, he finds his car, goes home, tells his buddies, his buddies say, well, why don't you just call it Warren? He lives right in Monroe, next town over. Ed meets him, they walk into the woods, they find the idol. As they're walking in, it, he tells Ed about this, this guy, more detail. Ed sees the idol, he immediately says, I know what that is, and I know who the guy is. A satanic worship idol, it doesn't belong here. It's Satanists that are using this. Good that you told me about it, because I'm going to take it back with me. It doesn't belong here. So he takes the idol, puts it in the back seat of the car, and comes home. Nothing happens for a day, nothing happens for two days. Third day, Ed's out in the driveway, fixing the wipers on his car. And Lorraine is about 20 feet or so back, watering some flowers with a hose. She looks at Ed, she goes, hey, after we're done, we'll go have lunch. Ed's like, yeah, no problem. As soon as I fix my wipers, he goes back to doing the wipers. He looks back towards Lorraine, she's no longer there. It's like seconds later. She's like 25 yards up in the backyard, lying down in a fetal position, semi-conscious. No hose, no nothing. Ed drops everything, runs to Lorraine, panicky. Lorraine, what's the matter? She doesn't answer him. She's like semi-conscious. He calls the ambulance and the police. They come and they bring her to St. Vincent's Hospital in Bridgeport. She's there for three days, in and out of consciousness. I went with Judy the next morning to see her. She could hardly talk. She just about recognized her, her own daughter. And she was almost like somebody hit her with a baseball bat and she had the flu. Yeah. That's how she was acting, like, just out of it. Doctors did all kinds of tests, brain scans, everything else. The third day, she snaps out of it. She's perfectly fine. Doctor said, she can go home, Ed. She's fine. There's nothing wrong. We can't find anything wrong with her. She says, I want to get out of here. I'm hungry. I want to eat. She goes home. She's fine. The next day, I come over to see Ed. I go, Ed, can we look at the statue again? So I come in and look at the statue. Whatever happened with Lorraine? What, what did the doctor say? He said, they never told me, Tom. He goes, but they didn't need to tell me. I know what happened. He goes, that son of a bitch. And he gave me the guy's name. He goes, his name is, he told it. He's, he's a German guy. He's a high priest in a satanic cult. And he did that to Lorraine as a warning to me. He goes, I know he did. He goes, he didn't mess with me directly because he knows I have a lot of knowledge on reverse ceremonial magic and that I could be damaging too. But he wanted to warn me because I stole his idol out of the woods. He goes, as soon as that kid told me the description of this guy, I knew who it was. Here's the crazy part. He told me his name once. It's a German name. 
but I'm not going to repeat it. Mm -hmm. I say why. So I said, oh, okay, is he powerful, huh? And I'm talking. Yeah, he's real powerful. Two months later, I said, hey, what's that guy's name again? That satanic priest guy? I said, I'm not going to tell you what his name is. You got to remember or you don't remember. Oh, come on. Just what he said to me. Every time I mention that goddamn guy's name, something bad happens to me or to us. I go, really? He goes, yeah, that's how powerful the guy is. I don't even like to repeat his name, he says to me. This is going to freak you out a little bit. I didn't learn this until about a year or so ago. The person who was responsible for the, <clears throat> for the death of all those children lived on Yogananda Drive in Newtown or Sandy Hook. A young man who murdered his best friend and kidnapped his girlfriend about five or six years ago. He lived on Yogananda Drive. This high priest of the satanic cult, well, I'm not going to tell you his name, lived on Yogananda Drive before he died. Now, what's going on? Three things like this guy was a high priest, had a lot of power, it told me. A lot of power. He lived on the same street as that killer and the other killer. I mean, there's no proof to anything, but yeah, to me, it's kind of too coincidental. And I think that does it for the TikTok. And yeah, thanks to the creator for putting it out there. Cool. I assume that the guy talking was the. Uh, son-in-law that now runs the occult museum with their daughter. All right, jumping back into the stories, uh, we go now to Hollywood Reporter, where they have an article, uh, The War, or War Over the Conjuring, The Disturbing Claims Behind a Billion Dollar Franchise. A legal spat reveals the real-life demonologists and the $1.2 billion grossing horror movies may not have been as nearly pious as they're portrayed. Fans of the Conjuring horror movie franchise will be familiar with the romantic tale of Ed and Lorraine Warren, real-life married demonologists who claim their Catholic faith helped them fend off the forces of evil. In the trailer for the first film, Warner Brothers' new line division sold The Conjuring as based on the true story of the Warrens, but according to legal filings and recordings obtained by The Hollywood Reporter, it's possible that even the simple depiction of the Warrens as a devoted and pious couple might have stretched the truth past the breaking point. It appears that top studio executives were made aware just weeks after the first film opened in 2013 of allegations that in the early 1960s, Ed Warren initiated a relationship with an underage girl with Lorraine's knowledge. Now in her 70s, Judith Penny has said in a sworn declaration that she lived in the Warren's house as Ed's lover for four decades. It is unclear whether Warner Brothers took any action in response to these allegations, but the sequel continued to portray them as a happy couple in a conventional marriage. Warner's declined, Warner Brothers declined to comment, but an attorney for the studio has asserted in court papers that a disgruntled author and producer suing the studio for profits from the franchise are pushing the story of the Warrens' personal lives as part of a vendetta. Ed Warren died in 2006, and Lorraine Warren's attorney, Gary Barkin said the family has no knowledge of the alleged conduct and his client, now 90, is in declining health and unable to respond to the allegations. Movie marketers long have found value in claiming that films are based on fact, 
but there are no explicit rules governing how far filmmakers can deviate from the truth while still including based on a true story in advertisements. When challenges have arisen in the past, courts have given the studios a lot of latitude. Sometimes there's a backlash against a film when its accuracy is questioned, as happened with Norman Jewison's The Hurricane or Catherine Bigelow's Zero Dark Thirty. Both obviously are more serious fact-based films than The Conjuring. Given the supernatural element of The Conjuring films, it's fair to assume that not every fan believed everything shown on screen was literally true. Skeptical or not, audience flocked to the movies. The Conjuring and its spin-offs have grossed $1.2 billion for Warner Brothers. Profits that have spawned a veritable horror show of litigation over who owns the rights to the Warren story. Another spin-off is in post-production, and a second sequel is in development. Ed Warren was a self-taught ghost hunter, while Lorraine put herself forward as a medium who could communicate with spirits. The Warrens didn't take fees for their work, but they enjoyed immense financial success nonetheless, thanks to nine books, a busy lecture schedule, and consulting on films based on their exploits, including the 1979 and 2005 versions of the Amityville Horror. The original Conjuring film, set in the early 70s, tells the tale of the Warrens' dramatic rescue of a family residing in a Rhode Island farmhouse, supposedly inhabited by the spirit of a long-deceased witch. From the start, the Warrens' romantic relationship is central, with Patrick Wilson playing Ed and Vera Farmiga as Lorraine. Do you remember what you said to me on our wedding night? Lorraine asked Ed at one point. You said that God brought us together for a reason. But the materials obtained by THR, or The Hollywood Reporter, suggest that in real life, the Warrens' relationship was far from divine. Among them is a sworn declaration from Penny, who maintained that Ed, with his wife's knowledge, initiated an amorous relationship with her when she was 15. Penny, who had not been a party to any of the litigation over the Conjuring movies, declined to comment. Ed Warren was in his mid-30s when allegedly met 15-year-old Penny. Having not yet gained enough fame as a self-trained demonologist to pay the bills in the early 1960s, Ed was working as a city bus driver in Monroe, Connecticut. Penny was a student at Central High School in a nearby town of Bridgeport who rode his bus. The two began an amorous relationship. Penny said that in a legal declaration, she gave in November 2014. According to that document, as well as newly obtained recordings of Penny's recollections of events, by 1963, she had moved into the Warrens' home. For the next 40 years, she said she had a sexual relationship with Ed, with Lorraine's knowledge. At first, Penny stayed in a bedroom directly opposite the one occupied by the married couple, but eventually she moved into an apartment built for her above the home. One night, he'd sleep downstairs, she said in a recording. One night, he'd sleep upstairs. Even in 1963, a teenage girl did not move in with a married man without attracting notice. That year, Penny was arrested after someone reported her relationship with Ed to local police. According to November 2014 declaration, she spent a night in the North End prison in Bridgeport while police tried to persuade her to sign a statement admitting to the affair. After Penny refused to cooperate, she was ordered by the court to report her to a delinquent youth office for the next month. According to Penny's account, Ed picked her up from school every week and drove her to the mandated meetings. 
Penny had said Ed told her many times that she was the love of his life. The Warrens, according to her, presented her variously as a niece or a poor girl when they had taken in out of charity. In May of 1978, in her 30s, Penny became pregnant with Ed's child. In the declaration, she said Lorraine persuaded her to have an abortion because the birth of a child could become public and any scandal would ruin the Warrens' business. Though Lorraine has claimed to be a devout Catholic, Penny said her real God is money. In a tearful recording obtained by us, Penny recalled, They wanted me to tell everyone that someone had come into the apartment and raped me, and I wouldn't do that. I was so scared. I didn't know what to do, but I had an abortion. The night they picked me up from the hospital after having it, they went out, lectured, and left me alone. Penny also claimed that Ed was sometimes abusive to Lorraine. Early on, she said she witnessed him backhand his wife so hard she lost consciousness. Sometimes Ed would actually have to slap her across the face to shut her up, Penny said in one recording. Some nights I thought they were going to kill each other. Penny has said she helped Ed maintain his reputation as a ghost hunter. She, he claimed to have captured the White Lady, a ghost who supposedly haunts Union Cemetery in Easton, Connecticut, on tape in the summer of 1990 after camping out in the graveyard for a week. Penny claims Ed wanted to make a video that would show what the White Lady would look like if she were spotted. So he took a page from every grade schooler's Halloween playbook and donned a white sheet for the filming. Oh, she took a page. Okay, so she wore a white sheet. Uh-oh. Lorraine's attorney, Barkin, tells us that Judy and Tony Spera, the Warren's daughter and son-in-law, never saw any of the alleged conduct during the decades they spent with Ed, Lorraine, and Penny. The Warrens opened their home to Miss Penny when she was 18 and had nowhere else to live following a childhood of neglect, writes Barkin in an email. During much of their career, Ed and Lorraine were on the road, working on cases and giving lectures, and Miss Penny lived at and watched their house. They also say Penny had a long-term boyfriend for much of that time, whom she eventually married. The couple spent holidays with their family. The Sparrows believe Penny is now being manipulated. But Lorraine seems to have been intent on preventing any sordid aspects of her story from being portrayed on screen. Her deal with New Line to serve as a consultant on and model for The Conjuring includes usual res unusual restrictions. The film couldn't show her or her husband engaging in crimes, including sex with minors, child pornography, prostitution, or sexual assault. Neither the husband nor wife could be depicted in, as participating in an extramarital sexual relationship. Talent attorney Jill Smith said she has never seen specific language barring such depictions, though individuals selling rights to their stories sometimes restrict portrayals. I've done deals, is what she says, I've done deals with prevented, which prevented depictions of certain specific types of odious behavior, which are not relevant to the underlying story, and in which, typically, the person is not known to have participated. Soon after the original Conjuring movie opened, producer Tony De Rosa Grund sent an email informing top Warners and New Line executives that the film was a far cry from the advertised true story of the Warners, or the Warrens. De Rosa Grund now locked in a legal battle with the Warner Brothers over profits from the movie, 
after he claims he was unfairly shut out of the sequels and spinoffs, said his September 2013 email that a woman close to the Warrens had seen the movie and was mortified as to the inaccurate portrait of the relationship between Ed and Lorraine Warren. Among those copied on the emails were Warner Chairman Kevin something and marketing chief Sue Kroll, as well as Toby Emmerich, then president of New Line, now president of Warner's film studio. Outside counsel Michael O'Connor, in-house attorney Craig Alexander, it's unclear whether Warner's responded. New Line is currently pursuing sanctions against the producer in another pending litigation. Not only was the Warren's marriage a far cry from the one portrayed on screen, DeRosa Grund wrote in his email, but their daughter, also named Judy, portrayed in the original film by Sterling Jarens, had not lived with her parents, but with Lorraine's mother. Penny said she was the only young girl living in the Warren's house. Ed was a pedophile, a sexual predator, and a physically abusive husband, wrote De Grund, or De Rosa Grund. Lorraine enabled Ed to do this. She knowingly allowed this illegal relationship to continue for 40 years. They lied to the public. The email was sent after the first film, but 2016's The Conjuring 2 only amplified the loving relationship between the Warrens. At one point, Ed adoringly sings, Can't Help Falling in Love, to Lorraine. The film ends with a callback to that moment, as Lorraine puts on the record, and the two slow dance in the living room. The Warren's straightforward earnestness fuels the film, more than their Catholicism, wrote Sherry Linden in a review of The Conjuring 2. Amid the chills and thrills, the childhood anxieties and vulnerability, Juan has made a celebration of the demonologist duo's marriage. In September 2013 email, DeRosa Grund wrote that he assured he had assured Penny he could temper the romantic relationship shown between Ed and Lorraine in the sequels. He warned the executives that Penny might tell her story to the media. Once this comes out, do you think Patrick Wilson or Vera Famiga would knowingly play Ed and Lorraine ever again? The answer is no one would. No amount of spin from any crisis PR firm can ever fix this once the truth comes out. Neither actor has commented. Penny has never told her story to the media, but it nearly surfaced as part of the sprawling legal fight over the films. Author Gerald Brittle's claims in a pending lawsuit that the Conjuring franchise rips off his 1980 book, The Demonologist. Brittle is suing Warner's and New Line for staggering $900 million. The studio has argued that its films are protected from copyright claims because no one has a monopoly to tell stories or make movies about true-life figures and events. But Brittle counts, counters that the studio is aware of the portrayal of the Warrens in his book turned out to be far more... Far from truthful. Brittle claims he believed the stories the Warrens told him, but later found out they were concocted. Explosive allegations about the Warrens' relationship were included in an October 2015 letter to New Line, outside counsel counter from attorney Sanford Dow. Mr. Warren has been accused of being cut from exactly the same cloth as convicted Penn State football child molester Jerry Sandusky and accused sexual predator Bill Cosby. Mrs. Warren is both condoning and covering up these heinous acts and is complicit as her husband. 
Dow threatened to add these claims in litigation against New Line unless the studio agreed to a settlement. The proposed deal suggests terms to resolve not only Brittle's and DeRosa Grun's issues with the studio, but also Penny's, though she was not party to the settlement discussions. According to the letter, Penny would transfer her life rights to New Line and sign a confidentiality agreement in exchange for $150,000, the same amount Lorraine initially received for The Conjuring. The settlement didn't happen, and explicit allegations have not been included in any litigation against the studio. But buried in the 355-page lawsuit that Brittle filed in March was a claim that Penny was ready to testify about the epic falsity of the family dynamic in the films. The lawsuit said Penny would disclose the absolute charade of this family dynamic, as told by the Warrens, and depicted as fact in all the defendants' movies. The true family dynamic was known at the highest executive levels of both New Line and Time Warner. The suit said that the studio ignored the truth to protect its billion-dollar franchise. Reached out to by the Hollywood Reporter, Brittle declined to comment on the matter or share his knowledge of Penny, whom he has known for decades. The author, author even referenced her in his book in chapter about the 1974 haunting of Peter Beckford's family home in Vermont. Beckford's 19-year-old daughter, Vicky, invited a demonic spirit into the family's life through a Ouija board, the, family, the story goes, and she was referred to, he was referred to the local ghost hunters. Pete telephoned the Warrens and spoke with Penny, a young woman who works as liaison when Ed and Lorraine are out of town, Brittle wrote. Judy has heard some hair-raising tales over the phone, but this one in particular scared her. The Warrens are out west, she told Pete Beckford, but I'll relay the message to them. All right, so that was a bunch of stuff about not about their claims being false, but about their lives and the way they're portrayed being not necessarily the truth. From Criminal Element, uh, The Warren Case Files, Fact or Fiction, by Angie Berry. The average person would be shocked, not to mention terrified, if objects suddenly started flying around their bedroom. If black figures began lurking in the corners, glimpsed only from the corner of the eye, if cabinets started slamming in the kitchen and malevolent voices whispered beneath the basement steps, most would jump to a single explanation thanks to preponderance of movies, TV shows, and spooky stories told around the campfire. The house must be haunted. And because the average person on the street works in retail or in an office, those who feel woefully out of their debt may seek out a professional help. In the 60s, 70s, and 80s, Ed and Lorraine Warren were those professionals. Ed was the only non-ordained demonologist recognized by the Catholic Church, while Lorraine was a clairvoyant and light trance medium. Over a five-decade career, the married couple assisted hundreds of families in the Americas and the UK who were terrorized by unseen and otherworldly forces. In 1980, Gerald Brittle wrote The Demonologist, The Extraordinary Career of Ed and Lorraine Warren, billed as a 100% factual biography of the Warrens. Several of their most high-profile cases, the possessed doll known as Annabelle, the Amityville Horror, their investigation at West Point, are covered in the New York Times bestseller. For more than 30 years, Brittle and the Warrens were steadfast, and the demonologist was non-fiction. Diabolical forces are formidable, said Ed Warren. These forces are eternal, and they exist today. The fairy tale is true. 
And that was a direct quote from Ed Warren. According to the Warrens, demon, demonic beings could attack at any time, and people had to be extremely careful not to invite these forces into their life, else they would suffer dire consequences. The Warrens were popular on the lecture circuit at colleges, libraries, and town halls. They appeared on numerous talk shows and TV specials and were often interviewed by newspapers. Not just supermarket tabloids either. They were frequently photographed standing behind or beside traumatized people recounting unbelievable, horrible experiences with ghosts, demons, and possession. For years, the general public took them seriously. They had always had their detractors and skeptics, of course, but they struck many as serious professionals, something Brittle's book only emphasized. But then, following Ed Warren's death in 2006, people began to recount their original testimonies. Families stepped forward to claim Ed had even paid them to lie. While investigations into several of the Warrens' cases, such as the Enfield poltergeist in London, revealed the pair had been far less instrumental in the events as they claimed, even their biggest claim to fame, the Amityville Horror, had been thoroughly debunked. According to the lawyer William Weber, in 1979, the events at Amityville were completely fabricated by him. Author Jay Anson and the Lutz family over many bottles of wine as a means to recoup the family's losses and their unwise investment. Despite all of this, Brittle and Lorraine Warren held to their guns. All of the information presented in this book is true, Riddle wrote in the preface of The Demonologist. These are real cases that happen to real people. It should be stressed that there is no exaggeration or hyperbole in the presentation of the phenomena in this book. The reputation and career the Warrens had built was legitimate, insisted Lorraine. They had never charged for their services, barring travel expenses and incidentals, of course, and their primary goal was to collect scientific evidence of the paranormal while helping desperate people. Then Warner Brothers came calling. The Conjuring was a somewhat surprising hit, garnering a perfect rating on Rotten Tomatoes and pulling in scores of horror fans based on one of the Warrens' investigations in the 1970s. The story follows a family being persecuted by the child-killing ghost of a witch in a remote farmhouse. Thanks to a minimum outrageous violence and an emphasis on atmosphere, The Conjuring is a satisfying little horror story, a throwback to a time before the genre felt the need to turn the torture dial up to 11. It also helped that the movie version of the Warrens were so well cast. Patrick Wilson's Ed is a charming father and husband, a chivalric polyester-clad knight in the fight against supernatural evil. Vera Famiga's Lorraine is mystical without being ridiculous, as well as a grounded, loving, deeply religious woman. Naturally, the success of The Conjuring led to sequels, The Conjuring 2 and Annabelle, and all of the Annabelle spinoffs, and buzz of more to come. The Warrens, who had faded from public eye somewhat in the years following Ed's death, were suddenly the talk of the town again, something Gerald Brittle wasn't too happy about. According to him, he made a deal with the Warrens that had been broken with The Conjuring in writing The Demonologist. Brittle was to have the full rights to the Warrens' case files, and the couple was not allowed to make movie deals without his involvement. Warner Brothers' New Line Cinema had gone over his head by making a contract directly with Lorraine Warren. 
and Brittle wanted his cut of the franchise's success. Warner Brothers countered by arguing that no one could have a monopoly on true life events. A lot of this was covered in the previous article. It talks about how the actors played their roles very good, and therein lies the crux of the matter. They're great characters. They fit so neatly into horror narratives and tropes that whether the story they tell are true or not is almost irrelevant. It's pretty clear at this point, hindsight being 2020, that Ed and Lorraine vastly overstated their contribution to police investigations and study of the paranormal. Given the later testimonies of people involved, they're like, they most likely fabricated and staged a lot of the evidence Lorraine continues to hold up as scientific proof. They almost certainly encourage families to exaggerate. Why? For attention and prestige? To build up a reputation? To legitimize their interest in the occult and otherworldly? And for money, of course. They may not have charged for their clients for their services, but they did get free room and board and travel everywhere they went. Tours of their private collection of evil and possessed objects come at a cost. They've earned royalties from books and movies, and their New England Society for Psychic Research undeniably benefited from their high-profile status. To their credit, the Warrens don't seem to have caused serious damage in their march towards paranormal icon status. People haven't died or gone bankrupt as a result of them play-acting, which is why most of us can detach the real people from the movie characters and enjoy the franchise of The Conjuring, which is a solid, satisfying horror series to the point. My friend Emma sums it up nicely. The real-life Warrens are trauma vultures, quick to latch onto anything that implies supernatural interference, while the movie Warrens are precious darlings with a love story for the ages. So fact or fiction, does it matter if it's quality entertainment? Perhaps it's only significant when a fortune in royalties is on the line. Brittle's lawsuit hasn't been thrown out, and the Warner Brothers has been, will be defending their supernatural catch cow in the next in court next April. Not even a psychic can prevent how the judge will rule in this lucrative game of truth versus fantasy. I mean, to be fair, it does sound kind of like there was money involved, and Brittle is jealous of the money, so he could come out and say anything. Nope, they made it all up, or anything. Because he wasn't cut in on the deal. He wasn't going to say anything until they made a lot of money and it was without him. So that would be my opinion on that little part of it. But I digress. Here's another article to the negative of the psychic who made bank off satanic panic. Together with her husband, Lorraine Warren injected herself into numerous high-profile cases of house hauntings and demonic possession. Hollywood was never far behind, by Shannon Robinson. Paranormal investigator and self-proclaimed clairvoyant Lorraine Warren, one of the psychics most closely associated with what was known as the Amityville haunting, died Thursday, April 18th at the age of 92. Warren and her husband, Ed, who died in 2006, achieved their greatest fame for their research and writing about the events in Amdeville. From there, their probes into rampant hauntings and demonic possessions, mostly along the eastern seaboard, inspired a series of novels including, and movies including The Amdeville, The Conjuring, The Conjuring 2, The Annabelle, The Haunting in Connecticut, just to name a few. The purported haunting of a house in Long Island town of Amityville was the Warrens' most high-profile case, thanks to the subsequent books and movies. Based loosely on 
in most versions on the events. After a family moved into the house where a multiple murder had previously occurred, they reported several inexplicable occurrences and sensations. The Warrens were among the paranormal investigators called in to inspect the property, and Julie reported having found evidence of psychic trouble, some of it predating the multiple murder. Lorraine would say years later that Amityville case even haunted her. Early pioneers in the 70s Satanic Panic era, a time with cults performing Satanic rituals were supposedly, although without much evidence, thought to be widespread problem. Lorraine and Ed capitalized on the trend and made a killing, not by charging clients, their services were free, but through books and movie deals. The couple collected enough satanic paraphernalia to fill a museum at their small Monroe, Connecticut home. Satanic panic and the haunting and possessions that the Warrens dealt with, all conveniently located in their own New England backyard, mostly occurred in the 70s and 80s, when fears of the occult and devil worship bubbled onto the national scene as never before. The Warrens, devout Catholics, decided to hop on the pentagram bandwagon. The Catholic Church does, after all, acknowledge demonic possessions. Where there was a knock, a smell, a draft, or a person possessed, the Warrens stood as consultants to predominantly Catholic families who were suffering from household demons. Sometimes they only had to show up and talk into empty rooms where angry spirits dwelled, dust their hands off, and leave. Other times they had to be more hands-on. In March 1981, the New York Times published an article with a pretty absurd headline, Defendant in a Murder Puts the Devil on Trial. The story began by recounting the Bible story of Jesus encountering two possessed men. He drives the demons out, and they enter a herd of pigs who flee into the water and die. It's an odd start to a new story, but not nearly so nutty as what follows. According to the Times story, David Glatzel, a 12-year-old boy who was afraid of the household waterbed, was pushed onto it by an apparition in the shape of an old man. The old man appeared again, so at the urging of a Catholic pastor, the boy's mother reached out to Mrs. Warren. Nine years ago, she said, referring to the priest she had worked with, we were involved in a very bad case. He was the exorcist. Although four priests, along with the Warrens, and stay with me, David's sister's boyfriend, Arne Johnson, worked to free David from the demonic possession, Arne made the mistake of telling whatever possessed the boy to take him instead, and that supposedly happened exactly as it had with the pigs in the biblical story. David's demon jumped into Arne. Six months later, he fatally stabbed his landlord, Alan Bono. The Catholic Church silenced the priest, only acknowledging they had been present to handle the demons, but no formal exorcism had taken place, since a sanctioned exorcism approval by a bishop was required, but had not been sought. Ed Warren refuted the claim, saying two younger priests went directly to the bishop. We have it on tape. The church wouldn't speak with the police detectives in investigating the murder, but the Warrens did. Four months before the stabbing, According to the Times, Ed and Lorraine warned law enforcement that they were working with clergy in a house they claimed to be a demonic lair, and they had some potential, they thought, for some violent act. 
The story was front page news for about a week until John Hinckley shot Ronald Reagan in late March 1981. Then the exorcism was forgotten, at least temporarily, only to be resurrected several months later. In September, the Washington Post was about 10,000 words of, on this garbage. At his trial, Johnson pleaded not guilty by reason of demonic possession. The judge rejected the defense because there's no such thing, and Johnson was convicted of first-degree manslaughter. Nevertheless, throughout his trial and sentencing, Johnson stood by his devil-made-me-do-it plea and refused to apologize. He served just under five years for the murder of Alan Bono. In the Washington Post article, Lorraine seems to have already cashed the checks that she anticipated for, from the family tragedy. Will we have a book written about this? W Lorraine Warren asked rhetorically, yes, we will. Will we lecture about it? Yes, we will. Are they talking to writers and movie producers? No, we're not, she says. Our agents at the William Morris Agency are. The Warrens hit the lecture circuit, wrote books, consulted on films, sold stories to studios, and showed up for all paranormal reality shows. They were rolling in dough, so if you had a haunting, they wouldn't charge you to look at it. They were, if nothing else, good storytellers. In a YouTube video, Lorraine said a spirit came home with them, and when they walked through the front door, their pets were walking backwards. Ed Warren died in 2006, and Lorraine had mostly retired from investigation, although she continued consulting on paranormal or supernatural phenomena. Alright, in the last few years, reports of Ed's relationship with a 15-year-old girl, Judith Penny, have resurfaced. With Lorraine's consent, Penny moved into their home when she was 18 to oversee the house and claims that she and Ed's lover, she was Ed's lover for four decades. Everything about these people seems sinister and exploitive, down to the admission they charged to see the haunted doll in their basement museum. Right, it talks about how she and Ed met and married and founded the New England Society of Psychic Research. All right. And the article goes on to say, at best, Lorraine Warren was a pop culture fixture of the horror genre. At worst, gone. The moderate stance would be, well, the Warrens got rich off some crazy make-believe wawa, but at least they did not, they did no great harm to families they purported to help. All right. So that's kind of like a, what do you believe kind of thing. The Ghost of Bathsheba. The story starts with the Perrin family being haunted by a witch named Bathsheba, who killed her son and hanged herself by the tree in the front of the house. The witch haunted the family and gave them nightmares. However, the family also felt the presence of spirits that were friendly, such as a boy who's the girl's nickname Manny. The girls loved to play with him. The groom ghost who would clean the house, it's, who would clean the house itself, and the old lady ghost who... Uh, tucked children to bed at night. Everyone in the house would wake up at 5.15 in the morning like someone is waking them, and if they were not up at the time, they were thrown from their beds. <laughs> the haunting caught everyone's attention, and the famous paranormal investigators Ed and Lorraine Warren were called to investigate the case. Unlike the movie The Conjuring, the paranormal investigators were scared and forced to retreat 
from the house by the witch Bathsheba. All right, this is from Thought Catalog. Ten times Ed and Lorraine Warren were outed as frauds by Chrissy Stockton. All right. Ed and Lorraine Warren are a fascinating couple if you're into the macabre. The self-professed Catholics created the New England Society for Psychic Research, NESPER, in 1952 and spent their lives investigating paranormal phenomena. Ed Warren styled himself as a demonologist, despite never having gone to seminary. He went to art school. Lorraine Warren claimed she was a clairvoyant. Together, the couple became famous for their work on the Amityville haunting, a subsequent best-selling novel and horror franchise based on the events. It's one of the places Lorraine says she'll never go. They also became famous for being grifters. Ed and Lorraine claimed they investigated 10,000 paranormal cases in their lifetimes. If they investigated one case per day, this would have taken them 27.3 years. That's without taking weekends off. As we can see from their books and in the Conjuring universe, some of these cases took days or even months to resolve. Ed Warren also had a day job as a bus driver, and the couple had a child, and they wrote books, made media appearances, and operated an occult museum out of their home. How could they possibly have accomplished all of this? Most famous of all for the couple is the fact they consulted on the Amityville haunting. The book that told the story of this haunting and mentioned the Warrens by name was published by J. Anson in 1977 and went viral in pop culture. The book became a bestseller and movie adaptation starring James Brolin and Margaret Kidder became one of the highest grossing independent movies of all time. The book and movie have been famously debunked as based on a true story. A couple of uh, concrete examples of confirmed factual errors in the book, according to Snopes. The Lutzes could not have found a demonic hoofprint in the snow when they said they did, because weather records records show there was actually no snowfall to leaf prints in. Oh, wow. Though the book details extensive damages to the home's doors and hardware, the original locks, doorknobs, and hinges were actually untouched. The book and film show police being called to the house, but Nikhil writes, during the 28-day siege that drove the Lutz family from the home, they never once called the police. It's also worth noting that William Weber... Ronald Defoe Jr.'s attorney has publicly stated that the story was made up between Jay Anson, the Warrens, and George and Kathy Lutz. The case featured in the original Conjuring movie was the real-life haunting claimed to be experienced by the Perrin family. Both Lorraine Warren and one of the Perrin children have confirmed the movie is accurate. However, the woman who currently owns the house where the parents lived Norma Sutcliffe says the movie is complete fiction and ended up making an hour-long video about all of them. The second Conjuring movie is about the real-life infield hauntings. The real family involved in the haunting did get caught faking evidence of haunting as shown in the movie. Also, like in the movie, police officers involved really did claim to see objects move on their own at the house. However, as far as the Warrens are involved, people involved in the case say, unlike the movie, the real life, in real life, the Warrens showed up uninvited and left a day later. The haunted Annabelle doll that the couple is famous for is certainly an extremely creepy story. 
That's probably why the whole story first appeared as an episode of The Twilight Zone, which aired seven years before the Warrens ever met the Annabelle doll. The episode, titled Living Doll, was part of the show's fifth season. The Smurl family says that they experience a haunting so strong and malevolent, they saw claw marks appear on the walls. When the Catholic Church refused to grant them an exorcism, they called the Warrens. When Scranton Catholic Diocese eventually sent someone to investigate, the priest wasn't impressed by the Warrens. They weren't sincere, were not what they purported, were not what they purported to be, and were giving the sensationalizing. He chuckled when explained what he went to one of their lectures. They saw him and toned down their act, so he wore disguises when he went to future talks. Ed and Lorraine were at the center of what even I, as a believer in the paranormal, consider a pretty obvious fake story known as the Devil Made Me Do It case, which is now subject to the third Conjuring movie. In 1986, the Warrens investigated a funeral home turned family home that was infested with demons. The Snedecker family complained of strange behavior in their son, violent and sometimes sexual acts by unseen entities and apparitions. The haunting was investigated by the Warrens and became the basis of a movie, A Haunting in Connecticut. The author, who worked with the Snedecker family and the Warrens in order to write a book about the ordeal, later recanted the story and said, The family involved, which was going through some serious problems like alcoholism and drug addiction, could not keep their story straight, and I became very frustrated. It's hard writing a non-fiction book when all people involved are telling you different stories. The Snedecker family had a neighbor living in the upstairs apartment during their stay at the haunted home. The neighbor never had a paranormal experience. No one has ever lived in the Snedecker home, has had a paranormal ex experience since the Snedeckers left. The New England Skeptical Society investigated many of the Warrens' claims. One founder, Stephen Novella, was also a neurologist and professor at Yale School of Medicine, said, You meet them and, oh my god, the guy had no idea what he was doing. Didn't know the first thing about anything relevant to paranormal investigation or ghost phenomenon. He also described the Warren's occult museum as full of off-the-shelf Halloween junk, dolls, and toys. The Warrens refused to allow members from the Skeptical Society to shadow them on a paranormal investigation or to examine the evidence the Warrens widely claimed to have provided proving the evidence of paranormal phenomena. When pressed, Ed Warren said, You can't have scientific evidence for a spiritual phenomena. The Warrens themselves claimed they once encountered a werewolf demon. They have an entire book about this case in which they specifically say they have exhaustive documentation backing up their claims, but they never share the documentation. Why? If you were a paranormal investigator working on a case with a real-life werewolf demon, wouldn't you snap a photo? Ed and Lorraine also claimed they had video evidence of the White Lady, a local legend about a ghost lady haunting in Union Cemetery. If they have a ghost on video, why did they never show this video to the public? Stephen Novella from the New England Skeptical Society says he was only allowed to view the video at the Warrens' home, and that even there, it seemed suspicious. He wrote about this video in the blog. Their piece de resonance mm -hmm. is Ed's video of the famous white lady of Union Cemetery in Easton, Connecticut, 
We have only been able to view this tape in Warren's home because Ed refused to give it to us for analysis, a common theme in our investigation. The tape shows an apparent white human figure moving behind some tombstones. Like videos of UFOs, Bigfoot, and the Loch Ness Monster, however, the figure is at the perfect distance and resolution so that a provocative shape can be seen, but no details which would aid definitive identification. Ed Warren had no investigate, has not investigated the video with any scientific rigor and refuses to allow others to do so. Despite Ed's insistence that he was engaged in scientific research, he continuously to jealously hoard this alleged evidence rather than allow it to be critically analyzed, as is necessary for genuine scientific endeavors. After the Warrens died, their son-in-law, Tony Spera, did release the video, which can be found on YouTube. The Warrens Occult Museum contained haunted and demonic objects from cases where it seemed like it would have been extremely easy to get verifiable evidence of the paranormal if those cases were real. For instance, in their museum, the Warrens had a vampire coffin from a modern-day vampire they claimed to have met. They couldn't get hard evidence from a vampire, but they could get his coffin. Beyond the claims that Warrens fabricated at least parts of each haunting they were involved in, there were extremely troubling claims that of Ed Warrens grooming the 15-year-old girl uh, that came to live with them when she was 18. And then it just goes on to talk about the lawsuits and stuff like that. So I'll let you decide what you believe, um, because... Whether these things actually occurred is up for debate, but I know I believe in the supernatural and the possibility of demons and stuff like that. And so, like, I was very alarmed and very scared the first time childhood me heard about Annabelle and about stuff like that. And I really think it would do a lot more harm than good uh, if somebody did make up stories about this because... It truly is like a supernatural belief that these things can occur. And then if they're going in there and just doing it for fame and money, uh, it kind of is like you're hurting the system that you claim to represent, you know? But I digress. All right. So we've covered the spooky details of some of their most famous cases. And again, there's lots more in books and stuff like that that's not really readily available for pop culture on the internet. Um, but yeah, encourage you guys to read the book and do some research. And it's fascinating, their stories. I, I will hand them that. Um, for someone like me that wants to believe in this stuff uh, and has you know experienced some uh, things that I would consider demonic or, you know, otherworldly and not yet explained in science. I really hope one day um, scientists are able to bring the science and the spiritual together and be able to explain it. But for now, it's just the unknown, you know. So we have to take people's word for it. And with people like uh, the Warrens, you know, I just, I don't know. I throw my hands up in the air and I say, I don't know, because on the one hand, yeah, grifters, exaggerators, um, yeah, but would that mean that I would insult the Annabelle doll or, 
you know, touch things in their occult museum? No, <laughs> I'm not inviting that energy into myself. Um, so, so I still have some respect for it. Um, and proceed with caution whenever it comes to the paranormal in any time it's reported. Um, but yeah, so I hope you enjoyed this episode, uh, learning a little bit about uh, them and their famous cases and some of the skeptics and what they say. So yeah, make sure to join us on the Facebook page, uh, Paranormal Stories. Spooky Shiz is in parentheses, so it's Paranormal Stories, Spooky Shiz. Um, that's the Facebook group where you can join us and contact me to submit future stories for future episodes. All right. With that being said, stay spooky, my friends. <laughs>